Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hi, my name is Matthew Harris. I am the Spanish Program Manager at Solar Energy International. If you're looking for the best information and tips on the Latin American solar market, you're in the right place. Welcome to Suncast with my friend, Nico Johnson. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and actions shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey, friend. Really glad to have you join us today. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on that new intro. Do you love it? Do you hate it? Why don't you let me know? I, I have a new feature on the website. Just go to mysuncast.com, and you can actually leave me a quick voice message. Yeah, a real voice message, and it's really quite easy. Hey, truly, I would love to hear your opinion. As I'm trying to get the show rolling in 2017, attuned to your ear, not mine. Man, I am so humbled by the feedback, the outreach, and frankly, the number of downloads of Matthew Harris's episode in only one week. You rock, seriously, and I'm proud to be bringing to light the kinds of conversations you are interested in hearing. Well, here's another episode that I'm digging up from the recorded but never released archives. And it fits with the new theme I've begun to see emerging from this year's upcoming episodes. So I'll just call it the Founders Series, Stories from Entrepreneurs on the Front Lines of Solar in Latin America. Last year, I sat down with my friend Rodrigo because I was really interested in better understanding the Brazil market in particular. Since he had just moved back to Brazil to run his new company, I reached out and we chatted for a bit about why. Today on Suncast, you'll meet Rodrigo Barfield of Long Light Energy. Rod has had quite an interesting career from World Bank and private equity in Southeast Asia to building real infrastructure in Central America. So he knows a thing or three about startups, raising money and even successful exits. And while perhaps some of the stuff in this episode may have better served you, me, and Rod if I'd brought it to light earlier, there's still some great evergreen goodies in the discussion. And frankly, I think the general consensus on Brazil is it's just getting going. Thanks again for taking the time to be here. Enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with Rod Barfield. Okay, my guest today is Rodrigo Barfield. Rodrigo is the founder and managing partner of Long Light Energy, a private investment group focused on sustainable infrastructure and specifically on distributed solar energy in Brazil. 
Rodrigo cut his teeth as an infrastructure finance specialist for the World Bank before he founded Real Infrastructure Capital Partners, which manages a $120 million private equity fund focused on renewable energy across Latin America, primarily Central America and Mexico. Now, Rod recently sold Real to make an all-in bet on the Brazilian distributed energy market. Rod, welcome to Suncast. You ready to get to work? Yeah, man. Let's do it. Good, good. Well, I got to start out with what seems to me like the most common question I get. Uh, you know, you've got a distinctly gringo last name, Barfield. So I have to ask and understand how a Barfield is in any way connected to Latin America. Tell me a little more about your heritage. Where, where does it, I, I understand that you are, in fact, somewhat connected to Latin America. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah, I'm very connected. And I wouldn't say that Barfield is a non-Brazilian name. I would say that it is a uh, gringon name, uh, which a gringon <laughs> means a really big gringo. It's a really big gringo name. And it's because my father is a really big gringo um, who met a Brazilian lady, my mother. So I was actually born here in Brazil. I'm actually a Brazilian citizen, and I would say that uh, half of my family is here in Brazil, and the other half is uh, a bunch of Southerners in the U.S. Yeah, I am in Floripa. Um, you know, when I uh, when I made this, uh, as you call it, an all-in bet uh, on distributed energy in Brazil. Well, Rod, thanks for that intro. Rod, I'm curious. It sounds like you are obviously uh, credibly uh, Latino and Brazilian, in, in fact. But your work experience was not always in Latin America, right? I mentioned in the lead up that you have worked for World Bank and, and you've been in infrastructure. But can you give me an, an understanding of how you first got into business in Latin America and, and that transition from what I understand was Southeast Asia principally where you were? Yeah, yeah. So I was, um, uh, you know, I, I kind of, when I joined the World Bank, um, I was based in uh the Jakarta office, and um, I was an infrastructure finance specialist there, whatever that means. And um, that led me to working in private equity based in the Middle East, but covering Southeast Asia. And that was the first time that I gained real exposure to private investment um, in infrastructure from a principal investment perspective. And the entire time that I was in Southeast Asia, I looked around and I saw a lot of these expats that sort of were becoming regional, were either already were or becoming regional specialists, and they were becoming very locked into that market. Um, Southeast Asia, especially Indonesia, is a really remarkable area, and Indonesia is a remarkable country, but I'm not Indonesian, and I really wanted to get back to the Western Hemisphere. Uh, I had always sort of dreamed of being able to work in Brazil and, you know, sort of take advantage of my familial connections there and, you know, sort of help to realize the potential of the country. I mean, that may sound a bit lofty and, and ridiculous, but I really didn't believe it at the time. And uh, so I sort of conspired to make my way back here. And that led to um, thinking that I could raise a private equity fund to do the same thing I was doing in Asia, which was investing in renewable energy in Brazil. Um, well, when I came back, the market was pretty hot um, especially for Brazil. Brazil was going through an unprecedented phase of growth. Um, if you remember back in the um, sort of 
2008, 2009 time, assets in Brazil were extremely expensive and it made it increasingly difficult to raise a private equity fund for Brazil when assets were at their peak prices. Despite everybody's <laughs> sort of promise of, you know, what Brazil was going to be, the reality was, was that, you know, assets were trading in the high single digits, low double digits. And that just, you know, after carried interest and a management fee, doesn't translate into much of a private equity fund. So, you know, the idea was, how do you get as close to there as possible? Well, the rest of Latin America was looking like a bigger play. You know, so much energy was focused on Brazil as a dominant market and some of the larger markets like Mexico. People were neglecting Central America and Central America was also benefiting from the sort of rising tide that was occurring throughout the region. Um, so um, I conspired to create a Latin American focused fund. Uh, still, still with a heavy exposure to Brazil. Well, you know, as things came out in the wash and, you know, as sort of, uh, you know, my partners at the time got their input, you know, things moved away from Brazil and, um, well, we successfully raised the fund. Um, you know, uh, I created the company on my own, uh, rate started the fund on my own. Um, after we raised the fund, started investing, and I realized the same way that I was looking at Indonesia and Southeast Asia, that I really didn't want to invest my life in being a Central America, Mexico specialist. It just wasn't where I wanted to go. And it would have defeated the purpose in coming to the Western Hemisphere to begin with. I really want, right, I right. wanted to get to Brazil. And a thesis that I'd had for a long time, which didn't really make sense from a technical perspective or an investment perspective at the time, was that we needed to move towards a distributed energy future. You know, the idea of this concentrated generation was an outmoded form of electricity production. And I felt that as technology advanced and as production for distributed technology increased, especially in places like China, then the cost curve would yield more opportunities for distributed energy. And it just made more sense that, you know, in the future, when you kind of like try to look, you know, 50 years in the future, do power plants like centralized power plants really make sense? Or does the idea that you have this thing, this appliance in your house that generates power for you make sense? And I didn't really know necessarily what technology would get us there, but I felt like that was the, that sort of miniaturization of electricity production is where we were eventually heading. And so, you know, to try to dovetail that idea with an investment thesis for Brazil, it seemed to look like distributed energy was the next logical investment destination. If anything, what I just said made any sense at all. It, it, it totally, it totally does. I am uh, in particular curious, was your fund specifically targeted for uh, energy or infrastructure generally? I'm not sure. I'm oh, sure. no, no, no. So it was called the Latin Renewables Infrastructure Fund because, you know, that's part of a fundraising strategy as well. Whenever you go to raise funds from a wide swath of institutional investors, you have to sort of check certain lists so you can make yourself applicable for investment review from the widest audience possible. How interesting. Obviously, Central America is just now seeing an emergence of solar. So what were the nature what was the nature of the renewables you guys were investing in in Central America and Mexico? Um, you know, primarily hydroelectricity, I, I would say was kind of the mainstay. Um, but you know, solar as well. Um, 
I can't really divulge too much about the nature of the investments that took place there. Uh, but um, but I can say, you know, it sort of fit the typical generation profile, you know, that was uh, that you can see in any country in Central America or Mexico. But I, I believe in the potential for Mexico and Central America. I mean, uh, not for one second would I dissuade anybody from thinking that those are really remarkable countries and remarkable investment destinations in their own right. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Yeah. I've, I've spent quite a bit of time uh, in Central America myself. Uh, they're remarkable places to visit, sometimes frightening places to invest, but that uh, I think that's for a different And a uh, lot of good surfing. Today. Oh, ep- epic surfing, in fact. Yeah. It's actually, uh, as an aside, there's really great kite surfing there, uh, in particular on uh, Lake Nicaragua for anyone who's interested. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> so, so, Rod, you sent me an article that I think is just a fabulous read, and I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna post it uh, later on the blog for folks to also get a chance to ch- to check out. It's by the Financial Times, called "The Fortune Hunters," and in the uh, the first sentence of that article, in my mind, uh, sort of sets the stage for this conversation. It says, "Brazil is mired in its worst recession since 1930s, but entrepreneurs know how to find opportunities." And they go on to talk about how foreign investment in Brazil is perhaps at an all-time high, uh, and in particular, where entrepreneurs are finding specific niches and opportunities to drill down. I'd love your take uh, as a, as a uh, what, do you, what do you call it, a big gringo uh, coming home to Brazil. Why do you think it's a good market? Why is now the right time? Why, in particular... Have you formed Long Light to go after distributed when Brazil has had two successful solar auctions at utility scale? And and just kind of give me an overview, if we will. Perhaps uh, it would be good if you just start at the top of, of Brazil economics in terms of why solar is, uh, is, is appropriate now and sort of the size of the market. Would you mind doing that? No, 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 of course. I'm happy to do that. Um, so if Brazil at a sort of macro level is big. I mean, I hate to say something that obvious, but is the largest country in Latin America, kind of by far. It's got 206 million people. So if you look at the next largest country, that's Mexico at like 120 something million, 122 million, something like that. So Brazil is is sort of far and away the largest power in Latin America. I would say its closest economic rivals, if you could really even call them that, would be Mexico and Argentina. Um, outside of that, there's no real competitor. I mean, look at Brazil's GDP, regardless of the economic situation that they currently find themselves in, you're talking about a $2.4 trillion economy. So this is not a, uh, this is not a small place. And what's unique about a very large country like that is that it has the sort of characteristics that you would find in a large country like the United States. It has a very strong domestic economy. So regardless of, you know, the sort of export-driven revenues that they receive, export-driven tax receipts that they receive from oil and soy and other agricultural products, this is still a thriving um, domestic economy as well that also grows based on the health of their sort of inter-country trade. So you look at that population and then you say, okay, you've got this gigantic economy there. And you've got, you know, this educated, relatively young population that's steadily growing. What do those people need? Um, those people right now need power. I mean, if you look at, say, I don't know, I think there was a World Bank study a, a while ago that said that 
power consumption in Latin America or across Latin America would need to double between 2010 and, and 2030. And that that would be something like $430 billion worth of investment. Well, Brazil represents almost half of that for the entire of Latin America. So right. this, is a, this is an enormous investment consideration. I mean, it's an investment consideration that regardless of how many competitors I have in Brazil, we can't really fully address the market need. Now, that's not true in, say, Central America, where one or two competitors and you're butting heads with the same people constantly. Not only that, but as a foreign investor looking at a particular market, like regardless of the fact that I am Brazilian, I'm still half American and, you know, my money is coming from overseas into Brazil. As a foreign investor, I have to think about where is the highest hit rate I can possibly have? And that's going to be where is there the most opportunity? And there's certain factors in the Brazilian story that make it have the most sense. One is that population uh, story that I just mentioned, and that's got, you know, this sort of just sheer market potential, the potential for market growth. Um, but more than that is going to be the price story. What is the retail price of power or the commercial po uh, price of power? And I don't mean the power, uh, the, the rate that's charged at a trading level, but the actual post-tax receipt level for an individual consumer. And if you look at, say, uh, say my house here in Santa Catarina, I'm paying about 15 U.S. cents per kilowatt hour post-tax right now. I'm in one of the cheapest places in Brazil for power. It's a pretty well-run area of the country, and it's got a pretty efficient and an effective distributor or utility. But if you look at somewhere like Rio, the post-tax retail cost of power right now is, is about 25 cents per kilowatt hour. So this wow. is a no-brainer market in terms of distributed energy. So... You just sort of take that on a, on a pure, purely cost competitive basis. Can I install some solar panels on my roof and get payback in, say, three to four years or three to five years just based on that basic economic analysis? Yes, is the, is the simple answer. Anybody can do a back of the envelope calculation and figure that out. But Brazil has also sort of been trying to address an energy crisis. And that energy crisis has been born of the fact that for about four years now, they've had a pretty severe drought. So Brazil is about 80% hydroelectric powered. They've had a drought for going on four years now. The reservoirs of the dams, some of the major dams have dropped below 15%. So they're at crisis level when it comes to their actual power production. Now that can all change, right? I mean, you can have periods of sustained rainfall that's going to replenish those reservoir, reservoirs. But meteorological studies here in Brazil estimate that it would take up, upwards of five years of consistent regular rainfall just to restore those reservoirs back to pre-crisis levels. So what's happening is, is that there's a knock-on effect, right? One, you have distributors that, for good or bad, you know, all all utilities kind of act in a sort of a kind of have an implicit public service obligation, right? I mean, they can never be as profitable as they should be or could be because you know they're regulated, and uh, that's part of the gig that you take when you're a distributor is that you agree to regulation. These guys have underinvested in their grids. 
right? So they've got a backlog of repairs and upgrades that they should be making anyway to their systems. And the only way that they're going to be able to make those upgrades and advancements of their systems is by raising tariffs. Well, you know, they're paying more for power right now because their supply of power is being cut. So they're paying more for power. They need to pay for upgrades and maintenance of the existing system. So how are they going to do that? They're going to raise consumer tariffs. Well, that's what's happened. So or, since I started this, you know, I came in with the thesis that, okay, prices of power, price of power is going to go up. Price of power has gone up. Since I started looking at the Brazilian market 18 months ago, the price of power on average has gone up about 50%. So this is no joke. Um, just the sort of rate of increase that's taking place here. So, that is yeah, and if you if you look at sort of large-scale industrial distributed energy 18 months ago, it was tough for us to make a competitive offer based on a sort of private equity level return. Um, today, all those projects that were out the money are way in the money. So we have a, you know, sort of a backlog of projects, you know, that in the past six months have gone you know, significantly in the money. And when I say in the money, I mean, we can make offers that are relatively, you know, anywhere from, let's say, uh, you know, 6% to 20% savings over the post-tax um, power bill that the consumer is paying. So, um, so that's, that's really helped a lot. And then on the, the sort of the sort of last stage of that is that Brazil passed a law 482, which was a net metering law. Well, that law has been expanded. So these are all the things that sort of quietly happen in the background that no one really talks about at a macro level for Brazil because the press is only, you know, interested in sort of disaster stories, right? Disaster movies are what sell big. So what they don't talk about is the fact that the law 482 allows for net metering, one. Two, it removes a host of taxes, which previously were added on to the cost of equipment. And three, it allows for production within the same distributor to be shared amongst commonly owned facilities. So, for example, you can now do community solar. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to speak in a, in a way that uh, speaks to an audience in case someone has no idea what I'm talking about here. But you can actually build, let's say that it, there's a closed condominium, which there's a lot of in Latin America, as you well know. But let's say you have a closed condominium and those people. Yeah, hey, Rod, Rod, sorry. Hang I, I want to uh, we just got a bad uh, signal break there. So um, just before you said I'm going to right where you said I'm going to speak uh, to the audience. I want I want to hold I want you to hold that thought. I'm going to hang up and call you right back on Skype and get rid of. This OK, microphone. cool. OK. All right. All right hang on. Oh. All right. Okay, good stuff. So, so jump right back. No, so, so basically, um, I'll just distill it down to a very basic level. Um, let's say you live in an apartment in the city um, and you own a farm or a beach house um, on the beach 30 miles away. And that house is in the same distributor. You can actually put panels on that house and receive a credit to apply against your property in the city. So this has opened up this huge opportunity for community solar here, because now people can collectively own solar plants. 
So for example, I can act like a developer doing a condominium development where I sell shares to the same customers that are in that same distributor network. So I don't need to build, you know, panels on top of, uh, you know, sort of a one community that has, you know, many different configurations of rooftop. Instead, I can go and purchase a plot of land very cheaply that's within the distributor network and then sell those lots individually to the people in that condominium. And, and, and is it important, is it important that it be like, as you said, within the, distributor oh, it has, network, to, so it has to be for you to be able to, for you to be able to utilize that credit. It has to be. So, um, under the law 482, I think it was just a couple months ago. Um, the Brazilian government expanded the ability to, um, to basically automatically license uh, any solar project that you have up to five megawatts if it's for self-consumption. So you can imagine, you know, you're going to Mexico or Costa Rica or some other market and you want to do a five megawatt system for self-consumption. You're going through some significant regulatory hurdles to be able to do that and get on the right side of the regulator to be able to do that. In Brazil, it's a, it's a license application that's automatic. There is no, there is no ability to reject it. So you're saying up to five megawatts, Just, it's automatic. It's essentially the same as the 500 kilowatt rule, so to speak in Mexico. Correct. Up to five megawatts now. So that is tremendously expanded our ability to work with industrial customers now. Now I'm, I'm curious as we dig into this, uh, just for the sake of, uh, the macro level, how many distributor networks are there in Brazil? So I would understand so, how, sort of what lines you can. Oh across. man, you're going to catch me uh, tongue tied. I, I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's tw more than, more than five. I think more it's than 26 20. actually. Wow. Okay. So it's important for a developer to really understand where the lines are drawn between distributors. If you want to roll out a. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's all there, uh, online. I mean, it's, it's, it's very spelled out and actually, actually okay. when, when saying spelled out, that's a good point. Um, it's pretty imperative that you speak Portuguese if you want to do business here. Mm, why is that? I would say that there's a lot of people that speak English here, but uh, you know, there's a significant amount that don't. And I ran into the same problem when I used to work in Indonesia. And it's because you have a large country that has a large domestic economy. It's the same as the United States. They don't necessarily need to learn English or another language. So the economy is so big here. If you want to do business here, you better speak this language. So it's, um, it's, it's uh -huh. just a different animal. And the reality is it is very different from Spanish. <laughs> so it's, it's not so easily yeah. translatable. Oh, come on. You're saying I can't get by on Portugal? <laughs> you can hapla uh, blas in Portugal if you like down here. I don't know. I don't know how successful yeah. you're going to be, but uh, yeah. I mean, the Argentines have figured out a way to do it. It tends to go, <laughs> it tends to go better with, um, you know, we, we understand them as opposed to them understanding us because I guarantee you they don't understand what we're saying. That's so funny. I, I've heard that when I was traveling through Brazil. That's exactly how uh, I heard both Argentines and Port Brazilians uh speak about it is, you know, unfortunately it's weighted heavily in the Portuguese speakers, uh, uh, basket there. It's, it's true. So, so what other, I'm, I'm curious, uh, th these are actually, these are really good tips. I'm curious what other sort of gotchas you've found, uh, as, uh, an American Brazilian moving back down there, uh, trying to reestablish yourself. I mean, you've got the value of having family, but 
what other gotchas did you discover that you that sort of you had to step back and go, oh right, this isn't New York. Um, I don't think that you have a podcast long enough for that actually, or that anybody. <laughs> <laughs> that's a separate. That's that's the insiders. <laughs> that, that, that is right that is that's yeah. I don't know if that's the uh, Gringo's Guide to Traveling, but I mean that's a that's a that is a monster list of um, of things. I mean, I would say the the biggest difficulty is just the sort of basic bureaucracy that you have to go through things like opening a bank account. I mean, you, you really are better served by walking into the bank and talking to somebody. You just can't do it online. It just doesn't work in a, in bloody, you know, money transfers and things like that. It's just really complicated international transfers or getting something shipped from outside of Brazil here. I mean, uh, well, actually that's actually, let's, let's stop. Let's, Let's zero in on that specific topic because it reminds me that uh, we had a discussion about importing, and we both know how difficult the uh, you know dotting your eyes and crossing your T's on the logistics piece of solar is. Help me understand just how different Brazil may be from Chile or Central America when it comes to getting your products into the country so that you can actually build these. Okay, assets. now this is a that would also be a very long discussion, but there is. Here, the name of the game is is really for large-scale infrastructure development and large-scale infrastructure investment. It sort of falls back on the same principle of all infrastructure investment, which is really project finance-based financing. Here in Brazil, the only way you're going to get project finance-based financing is if you have equipment that qualifies um, as either domestically produced or something that has a FINAMI code, uh, that's F-I-N-A-M-E. And FINAMI code basically, it can be procured by a manufacturer who makes some sort of promise that at some time they're gonna be producing something in Brazil. Um, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty relaxed process, but the obligation is still there um, to, uh, to eventually domestically manufacture. Without that, um, without that agreement, you do not have a streamlined process for the importation of foreign produced goods. And those goods can come into country, then they have to clear customs, and then they will be taxed at various intervals along the way from the point at which they're sold to a wholesaler, that wholesaler sells to a distributor, that distributor sells to the retail person, and that retail person sells to you. Along the way, it's accumulating taxes outstanding amounts of taxes. And I can simplify it best by giving you this sort of anecdotal piece. Um, my daughters received a Christmas present from their grandmother in Atlanta. She sent, God knows, I don't know, some Barbie dolls in the mail to Brazil. They forced her to declare a value on those Barbie dolls in the U.S. because of, of conforming to Brazilian shipping regulations, she had to write a value of $100 on there. Okay. When we picked up those Barbie dolls at the post office, uh, because, you know, again, for whatever reason, they just could not get it to our door. Um, when we picked up those Barbie dolls in the post office, we had to pay the equivalent of about $250 in import taxes on that declared $100 value. 
On top of that, they had opened the package, of course, to confirm the, you know, what was in there. So if that gives you an idea, now, now take that and, you know, extrapolate that to you need installation tools. You know, you need, um, you know, you, you have some sort of um, special configuration on a switch box. I mean, whatever you need and you need to import it. Well, now you're getting into a complicated situation. You know, if you have special tools, it's easier to freaking get on a plane, fly to Germany, buy it and fly back with it and deal with it yourself at customs than it is for you to import it. Have it more. So we have a we have a very good relationship. This was I'm glad you brought this up because I, I don't know if I've ever mentioned it, but one of the things that we did early on, and this is also through my family here that I'm working with, is worked with a very large logistics company that they'd done a, a lot of work with um, to help streamline this process. And now this logistics company is actually working with some of the panel manufacturers that I'm talking to. Um, because of the relationship and the connections that happen there. So, you know, I'm trying my best to cut out as many of these uh, stumbling points as I can. Um, but it is difficult. I mean, it's very difficult. But you work, you find the right partners, you find the right people that have done this. I mean, it's still a gigantic industrial economy here. So they do it every day. <laughs> These are these are great, Rod. I really uh, I love hearing these stories. I I think most folks who don't live in Latin America just have very little concept of how difficult it can be to do daily things. As you mentioned, you know, even opening a bank account. A buddy of mine was sharing with me the the turmoil he went through just transitioning to Panama and moving his family family there, just trying to open a bank account. Uh, the notion of getting a debit card, <laughs> uh, etc. And you know, it's it. You pointed out uh, in uh, when we chatted the other day that a lot of folks, uh, and and perhaps this is a warning, a, a warning of discretion for developers, but a lot of folks tend to move to these places like Brazil or Chile, and frankly, they spend more time going to the bank or more time talking to the tax office or you know trying to find a house than they do trying to build uh, projects, and so. <laughs> Uh, just, a, just, just I don't, you, I, you have a particular opinion on. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you tend to, you tend to, uh, to find my hard opinions and, uh, and make me share them, right? Um, you don't have to share. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would just say, I would just say, look, you know, I come from the buy side. I come from the investment side, and I had to learn how to become a developer. That's fine because I put my money at risk. Um, I wasn't putting somebody else's money at risk in this development. I sell the deals when I have them ready and I reap the reward because I took the risk on them. There are other people that will, you know, see investment, seed capital. And I don't know if they necessarily, you know, have the background or the knowledge set necessary to sort of navigate these waters here. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to find a lot of private equity funds or other investors that are going to back plays for the development of an office in Brazil to be able to do yada, yada, yada. And it just takes a while to set this stuff up. And no matter what, the person on the ground here is going to tell you that, you know, it's going to take whatever, 12 months. Wrong. Right. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, it took me nearly 12 months to find a good pool guy. So, you know, it's, it's, that's not going to happen. I think, um, I think they really need to be realistic in terms of their expectations of what it means to open a business here in Brazil, staff it, um, 
and then actually go out and do the business. And I think that getting back to what you were just mentioning, that's what people are doing. They're occupying themselves with actually just setting things up. Uh, it's like moving into a new house. They're spending their time, you know, buying rugs and, and paintings and new furniture and things like that instead of, you know, the actual time of just living in it. So I, I, I can see it. I, I mean, I see it firsthand down here. So it's good. Um, we can take advantage of it. Um, we already had a sort of existing infrastructure here in Brazil. I was very fortunate that, you know, I have family that's been in the energy business here in Brazil for 20 years. So I was able to just come in and, and just uh, piggyback on that and um, use that existing infrastructure to start doing our deals and that existing client base as well. Yeah, I appreciate you actually pointing that out as well, because it, it would, uh, it certainly helps in perspective to understand uh, that Rodrigo did not just go down and buy a house and try to figure out who to oh, go Lord, no. with. I mean, yeah, no, you, you actually have a very established network. And, and that's, in, and that's key, you know, it's key for all of us who have spent, uh, you know, the better part of a decade or more building relationships in the in the market. And, and that's what makes it so difficult to actually make inroads and headway in Latin America. Nico, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the thing that you have to keep in mind about Latin America is that, you know, regardless of all the technological advancement and social networking and blah, blah, blah that we have in the U.S. and Europe and here as well, this is still a relationship market. And um, that's frustrating and rewarding at the same time. I mean, it's really nice to have those social connections and it's really nice to not lose the personal side of business if there's such a thing. Um, and there is, I think. Um, but it's, it's, it's critical here. I mean, if you're not going face to face, then, then you're really not doing business here. Yeah. You know, and I, um, I appreciate that perspective and we're going to transition here to uh, the second segment of the of the show. But I want to leave this segment with one uh, with probably the quote for the episode. Uh, and it again comes from the Financial Times article. And it starts out by saying, in quotes, Brazil is not for beginners. And it's quoting the eponymous Tom Jobim, uh, probably the founder of certainly the force behind Bossa Nova. But, uh, you know, I think the conversation we've had certainly illustrates Brazil is not for beginners and you can't take uh, the notion of starting a business in Brazil lightly. Uh, it is, uh, it's probably as complex as any international market to enter. And, and in, my, in my view, uh, and I think Rob Rodrigo would agree, it is uh, complex in different ways than the at-large Latin American market. <laughs> I, I won't disagree with that. <laughs> well, the next section we call learning, leadership, and legacy, and it really looks at, you know, I want to look at, Rodrigo, how, how you uh, kind of set up your personal life and how that influences your professional life as a background. I'm curious if you can name for us a couple of books or blogs, you know, just things, tools and tips that you've discovered or perhaps you've created that have impacted the way you understand the markets and, and how they've impacted the way um, – uh, the way that you do work. And the other way I couch this, if you don't, if you can't immediately think of an answer is what's on your nightstand? What are you mm, reading? Let's see here. Given that I can't look at my nightstand right now, um, there is a, you know, I kind of, I've kind of been going back a bit. I don't, I don't want to say anything as uh, pretentious as I'm reading the classics, but um, 
I was uh, in California this past summer for vacation. I, I, I talked to you about that because you also, you have a house up in Big Sur, I think. Yeah, that's right, Monterey. Um, so I was I was up there, and we went down to Monterey, and um, you know, in Monterey was um, sort of inspiration for a lot of uh, John Steinbeck's books. So I picked up uh, again several Steinbeck books, and Travels with Charlie was one of my favorite books as a as a teen teenager. Yeah, and I picked up uh, Cannery Row because it was about Monterey, and um, and I honestly think that reading Steinbeck's take on sort of a, you know, a newly industrial America at the time from the perspective of the people working in it at the time um, really inspires me because I think uh, ultimately in this sort of investment business and this sort of, you know, uh, large scale infrastructure investment, there's a tendency on the part of everyone to forget who we're doing this for you know, who are your end customers? Because you think I'm building a power yeah. plant I'm going to sell it to this off taker. You know, I mean, we speak in these very abstract terms that tend to dehumanize the nature of what it is that we're doing. And I like to think about, you know, the people that we're actually serving. Ultimately, I think distributed generation helps to address that, right? Because we can actually penetrate areas where, working class people have no access to reliable power. Um, and so I think reading some of these humanizing works of literature can uh, be inspiring in their own right. I mean, I, I don't know if that's the answer that, uh, that you wanted or, or that I should be giving, but uh, there's not an answer that I wanted. I think it's an actually a very insightful and brilliant answer. I appreciate it. And Steinbeck continues to be one of the influential authors of our time. Um, certainly one of the greatest authors in America and uh, you know, books like of mice and men, the pearl tortilla flat have been uh, I, their required reading. Uh, it, once you expand beyond just standard high school reading and many, actually some of those are required uh, in many places for high school where they should be. And, uh, I, I appreciate that you, I, I really, uh, enjoy how you tied back the, the time period specifically that Steinbeck was writing many of those books in particular Cannery Row as, um, as a parallel to the way our industry is expanding throughout the world, not just Latin America. Oh, thanks. Yeah, Rodrigo, I'm curious, do are there any blogs or podcasts that you find interesting or that you I'll tell you to? the podcast that I am returning to time and time again is Suncast with Nico Johnson. I'm I'm, I'm telling you it is insightful. I love Shame. it because, you know, we are a clubby bunch of uh nerds in our industry and um you do a fantastic job of um of uh bringing out what it is we do and actually humanizing what we do. And, um, because I don't think most people get what we do at all. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate that shameless plug. I did not ask him <laughs> to say that. <laughs> uh, all right. Nick, so what one thing, Rodrigo, do you consistently do that yields the greatest impact or results in your personal or professional life? Mm. Uh, I would say in a professional life is, um, don't quit. I mean, you will be, uh, surrounded by naysayers but if you do the analysis and things make sense and you're willing to put in the work then take the risk you know 
um, to, yeah. to the risk takers go the reward. And, uh, yeah, I don't remember, I don't remember the, uh, the quote exactly, but there's a, there's a statistic or, or I don't know, maybe it's not a statistic that says that most people, uh, give up, you know, in the last mile, they, they stop just before they were about to achieve success. It's true. And it does. And also if you're unlucky, maybe it's best not to try. No, I'm just joking. It's true. And, you know, Seth Godin is famous for, for saying, look, at, at a certain point, you have to decide, do I stop digging if you're in the hole? <laughs> well, let's move to the last uh, question in this segment. It's all, and it's the, uh, the section we call hot or not. Well, I'll name some markets. You spend 30 to 60 seconds on whether or not you think it's a hot market or not a hot market and why. You ready? All right. Chile. Not. Uh, every everybody and their uncle is uh, in Chile. Um, that means that uh, asset prices will drive down. Um, there seems to be a lot of expectation about what I would consider to be, you know, um, not minimum returns, but you know, sort of lukewarm returns. Returns. So, if people are expecting lukewarm, then I would expect bad. Got it. How about Argentina? Got a new president. We've got a few. Uh, uh, 27% inflation rate. You know, the Argentina, I'm going to have to say potential for hot. Um, uh, I'm a contrarian by nature, but uh, Argentina is a unique place, man. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's got about, I don't know, under 50 million, 43 million people, but it's, it's actually still categorized despite all of its difficulty as a high income country. It's got a gigantic economy that's largely export driven. But the companies that are there, you know, um, uh, Dreyfus and uh, Cargill and, you know, some of the big agricultural concerns, I mean, they're running some of the most advanced agricultural industry in the world um, out of there. So I, I would never discount it. New president may, may be able to do great things. That's a country that's uh, lying in wait, I think. Indeed, we'll call it lukewarm. How about Colombia? Not. Uh, not mm -hmm. hot. Too many. You are certainly contrarian on some. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's just too, again too many people there, and and is it hot from the perspective of the, of a locally based domestic investor, domestic fund? Sure. Is it hot from the perspective of a foreign investor? Again, you got to remember. I guess I'm, you know, I'm an entrepreneur first, and then um, you know, a private equity investor second. And sometimes I switch those, but from a private equity perspective, trying to come from the outside into Colombia, there's too much sophisticated, highly competent capital already embedded in the country and you're competing against it. I would say that those mean that you're going to be buying operating assets or, you know, sort of established companies. So I'm going to say not. Got it. Any other South American country worth noting? Um, well, you know, I'm glad that you asked um, because I think that Brazil is uh, far and away the hottest country in uh, South America. <laughs> good, good on you. How about Panama? Panama, I mean, God, what? Panama's what, like four million people? Um, you know, mm -hmm. let's just kind of think about that for a second, right? Um, Panama is about four million people, and it is—I don't know. I mean, how? What's the installed generation capacity? Three gigs in Panama? Uh, yeah, just just under. Okay, three gigs. just under three gigs. And let's say over the next fifteen years, you're going to grow by another one and a half gigs, right? So let's say that you know, uh, on average, total capex for that one and a half gigs is going to be about uh, 
three billion dollars, right? And then the best that you can hope for equity in that regard, outside of debt, is going to be, you know, thirty percent of that number. So nine hundred million dollars, if my math is right. Yeah, nine hundred million dollars. And then let's just say that outside of the sort of large scale institutional or public investors, you maybe whittle that down to like 20% that's going to be private equity driven or, you know, open to private investment. Uh, so now you're at, um, you know, what, $180 million. And then that's to take place over the next 15 years. That's not much yeah. money, man. I mean, that's just, how, how that's, that's beating yourself up, you know, and fighting against a lot of other players. The guys that are there are the guys that are going to win. So, um, yeah, you know, what's interesting. Um, it's funny. You mentioned the population of Argentina. I wasn't aware that Argentina has 41 million and it's actually a, the 2013 census is about 41 and a half million. And I just did a quick search. The Central America, the seven countries that constitute Central America combined population as of 2009 is 41.7. Uh, 2012 estimates about 42.6. So um, you, what I hear you saying, and you know, it actually reminds me of something you said uh, recently on a call that we had. Uh, if you uh, if you sort of put things into perspective, and you you scale what a market looks like. Panama, if it's, you know, say, uh, an opportunity of one, then Colombia looks like an opportunity of, uh, you know, 10, and Brazil looks like an opportunity of about a thousand. <laughs> I would, I would say that that's right. I mean, I would, I would say just look at, yeah, do the, do the math, look at the raw numbers. Um, you know, Brazil was overhyped for a long time. That market potential was overhyped, um, to a certain extent. But, you know, let's not look, let's not forget where the overinvestment took place. It took place in a lot of speculative industry. We don't work in a speculative industry. You know, we work in a, in a you know, fairly calculable industry. So when you look at infrastructure investment, it's a completely different play. You can't overhype the corporate potential of an infrastructure investment unless you're investing at the, you know, developer level. But, um, you know, that's not necessarily always the smartest thing to do. Um but, uh, you know, if you're investing in operating assets, you got to look for that runway where the most projects possible of being built in the most conducive environment with the highest potential returns. And it's as simple as that. And those Central American markets just don't look like it to me. Very good. I'd say let's end hot or not on that note. I think that is a great way to cap uh, the episode. And I am uh, I'm curious, Rodrigo. You are a little over a year into this new venture. What's on the horizon for you? Uh, and, and what do you see as Longlight's uh, defined path? Um, the defined path, I think, would ultimately be for um, me to structure you know, this into a proper sausage factory, right? I mean, this is really a sales engine. Um, we have uh, already contracted about around 20 megawatts of distributed energy. Um, we wow. have, um, I think we have in the foreseeable future, the ability to execute about 80, uh, with the same, wow. the very same groups that are signing on to the 20. So you know, don't underestimate the sheer size of these industrial groups down here. Um, and all we can do for them is we can, you know, work with them as closely as possible, educate them as much as they want to be educated on the subject matter 
and then deliver the best product that we can to them. And through that exercise, we will get more business with them. And, and just so I'm, I'm clear, product in your mind is a financial product. Right? It is by and large. I mean, it's a, the, the financial product is the gap here, right? You have an abundance of engineers and capability um, in order right. to develop these projects down here. Some of the best engineers in the world are down here. So uh, there's no lack of, of that. But what there is a lack of is yeah. uh, long-term financing. And so we can fill that gap. Very good to know. There's, there's someone cracking that nut. Hey, how can folks find you, Rodrigo? Are you on Twitter? Or are you, where, where, where is the easiest place I should to find get you? on Twitter, but I still, I still barely yeah. know what Twitter is. Um, so yeah. it's the best place to find me is uh, www.longlightenergy.com. And okay. uh, that's, uh, you know, there's plenty of uh, contact information there. Good to know. Well, let's end today, as always, with a bold prediction. Rodrigo, what one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? My crystal ball is that not only the future for Latin America, but the future for the world. I mean, if you look past 20 years from now and you start looking into the future, it will be dictated by distributed energy. The There will be an eventual demise of large-scale concentrated power. And there will be an emergence of discrete individual energy production that becomes more appliant, almost like an appliance. And uh, those people that start adapting themselves to that future are the ones that are going to profit most. That is excellent. Well, Rodrigo Barfield, thanks for being on the show today. You are a wealth of information. <laughs> I wish I was. All right. Thank you, Nico. Thank you so much, man. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And um, I'm sure I'll talk to you like next week or something. I'm sure. All right, brother. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Talk to you soon. You bet. Take care. Ciao. That's some good stuff right there on Brazil, and I hope that you have soaked it in. I wanted to give you a quick update. I mentioned that this is an older recording, and I've also recently been in touch with Rod uh, to chat about the future and past of Long Light and how things are going. I'm going to be recording a new minisode, if you will, a quick five to ten minute conversation with Rodrigo to give you all an update in the coming weeks. So I just want to give you a heads up on that. Rod has actually moved back uh, for reasons, for personal reasons. Uh, he has moved back to the United States and is currently uh, still working on Longlight as well as building a distributed uh, solar company here in the United States. So I'm eager to hear the goods on that as well as his revised, maybe updated thoughts on the Brazil market in light of the current economic situation down there. So stay tuned for that, and thanks for being here again today. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend.
stay tuned.